Jesus. And so we are excited about continuing the Gospel of Mark. Our scripture reader this morning is Isaiah. So Isaiah, come on up here. He's going to read the scripture for us. All right, if you'd use that mic right there, you're in good shape right there. All right, and you can follow along on your own device or on the screen. We continue the Gospel of Mark and just discovering how remarkable Jesus is. All right, Isaiah, start us off in verse 1 there. And when they drew near to Jerusalem and Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, Lord, get out the way, <laughs> and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord is, has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found the colt tied to a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told him what Jesus had said, and they let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who sat before it and those followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came out, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and a leaf, he went to it to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard him. And they came to, him, they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who, said, who, sat, who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the twelve. And he was teaching to them and saying to them, It is not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished by his teaching. And, they, and when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, and if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Um, so, if you know me, you know, if you know me really well, there's several things I like. And if you ever see me make a sandwich, I put like more mayonnaise on it than there's meat. Like, I, I grew up on Hellman's mayonnaise. And I just, like... I, I just like things saucy and really wet. Like literally, it'll be dripping down my arms as I'm eating this sandwich, you know. And so I, I love mayonnaise. Anybody with me in the house? You enjoy mayonnaise? Amen. How many of you think mayonnaise is from hell? Anybody? Okay. Yeah, some of y'all do. Okay. So, like, I, I, I like it so much that I can actually eat a little bit straight. Okay. So I mean, just yeah, just a little bit. Yeah. That is really good. <laughs> that is really good. I, I love mayonnaise. I mean. I know I'm supposed to be preaching, but <laughs> that is really good. Yeah, I'm French fries, yes. Now some of you are thinking, okay, Gary, I get your point here, but this is really good. Thank <laughs> 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 
I can keep going. But I could eat the whole jar, but I won't. But like this passage we just read, not everything is as it appears. This is Cool Whip. So, now, <laughs> now, this story is commonly called the triumphal entry. And people celebrate Palm Sunday like it was a great thing. But what is actually happening here is a fake coronation. These people are saying, oh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, save us now. And they're proclaiming all these things. And it's all as fake as can be. Because in three days, what are they going to be saying to him? Crucify him, crucify him. They are saying, oh, be king of our life. And they don't mean it. And there's a lot of people who do that. They, they say, oh, yeah, I got saved when I was this age, blah, 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 blah. And they're living like any lost person who doesn't know Jesus at all. And this, what you're seeing here is something that churches celebrate all the time. Palm Sunday, like, yeah, it's a big thing. And it's all just very, very, very fake is what's happening here. Jesus, Jesus is going along with it because he knows, he's the one in control, that this is going to provoke the Pharisees to do what they need to do. And that's to crucify them. You see, every time people start saying, oh, you're the Messiah, you're the Messiah. He's like, shh, shh low key, low key, keep it down low, low. I don't want it to start now. And now he comes up to this week and he's like, okay, it can start now. And he goes along with this, but he knows, even though what they're saying is true in their hearts, they don't mean it. Not everything is as it appears to be, kind of like my jar of mayonnaise. So um, I thought Amanda was going to lose it right there. <laughs> um, verse 1 says, now. Now, the point is, we need to understand what's happening now. We are, we are at a very unusual place in the Gospel of Mark. You see, if you look at the timeline of Mark, we've gone through 10 chapters and this 10 chapters is describing three and a half years approximately. Now the last six chapters are to describe seven days. So Mark was like speeding through, speeding through. Let's go, let's go, let's go. And you know, he's the fastest pace of the Gospels. He's like immediately, immediately, immediately. And he's moving. Now all of a sudden he's going to go, whoa. Everything's just going to really slow down. And he's going to take six chapters to cover seven days. And so... That, that's really important that you understand what's happening now, when Jesus says now. And it says we're on our way to Jerusalem. Now remember, the last time he was in Jerusalem, what almost happened? They tried to kill him. And he says, hey, we're on our way back. And they're like, what? And as the disciples and the, other, and the, and the greater crowd are following him, it says many of them are scared. They're on their way. They're not only scared for Jesus, they're scared that you know, they may kill us too. And they go to two little towns that are just outside Jerusalem. Bethphage, which actually means house of figs. And so you see this story here about the fig tree. On the way in town and on the way out of town, Mark makes another Mark sandwich there. He, he puts it on either side. He does that with blind man. Remember, discipleship discord, blind man. He likes to do those things. And so instead of Bethany, Bethany is where his good friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. And remember what happened to Lazarus, what, what, did it, what happened the last time he was in, in that area? He raised him from the dead. And what's so crazy about this is the crowds are swelling and they're getting excited about Jesus and they're also celebrating Lazarus. Hey, here's the guy he raised from the dead. And get this, the Pharisees were so hard-hearted, they wanted to kill Lazarus too. Can you imagine being so hard-hearted that here's a miracle right in front of you and rather than accepting, so you know what? Jesus is right, we're wrong. There's the, there's the guy he raised from the dead. They'd rather kill him. Now, I kind of think if they did, it wouldn't go anywhere. <laughs> Jesus said, okay, Lazarus, come forth again. <laughs> you guys want to keep doing this? Let's keep going back and forth here. And he comes to a place called the Mount of Olives, which is Jesus' one of his favorite places to hang out and to pray. And if you kind of look at a map right here, Jesus is coming in uh, from the west. He's coming basically in the back door of Jerusalem and the back door of the temple, which is kind of ironic. But anyway, uh, and then on the right there is the Mount of Olives, which is like a two-peaked hillside there and obviously they grow olives there and that's where Jesus liked to pray and Jesus is coming through these two small little villages here and this is what's happening as he's about to make his triumphal entry in quote air quotes uh, into Jerusalem. This all was prophesied. Zechariah said that on that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives but this is a this is not only the place where Jesus will stand but this is also the place of Jesus' second coming. Okay, so if you think about our timetable, the next event that's going to happen is the rapture. 
Jesus does not come to earth in rapture. He just appears in the heavens, and we go up to meet him, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. But the second coming is when Jesus' feet actually step down on the Mount of Olives, where he's at at this point in Mark. So it says, His feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. That lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two. And I believe this literally will happen. When Jesus comes down, just like when the angel came down on the resurrection, there was an earthquake. I believe when Jesus comes down, the mountains, this, these mountains will split. But that's my interpretation of it. This is, this, so this is, Jesus is giving us a foretaste of this event by him appearing here. So he says, and then he, Jesus sent two of his disciples, which a lot of times it names disciples. Here it doesn't let us know who. I think it's just because it's maybe not important, but two disciples go. And of course, that was Jesus' practice. He liked to send the disciples out two by two. That's a good practice for accountability, but also for help as you're sharing the gospel and things like that. And he says, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on it, which no one has ever sat. Now, watch how specific Jesus is, is prophesying all this. He says, you'll go into this village. Not any old village, but make sure you go into the village. that we're at, right, well, This one right in front of you. Okay, And right as you enter it, there's going to be a colt right there. Not a full-grown donkey, a foal, as Matthew describes it. This foal will not be just standing there. It won't be just hanging out with his mom. It'll actually be tied. And this is a foal or a young colt that no one has ever sat on. If any one of these things did not come true, Jesus is a false prophet. But every single one of them happened just... And so you can imagine these two disciples walking to town. They're like, there it is. It's tied up. (laughs) And then they're like... Hey, by the way, has anybody ever sat on his donkey? Nope, nobody's ever sat on him. Like, wow, just like Jesus said. Jesus knows what he's talking about, amen? amen. And so, in 520 years before this happened, okay, Zechariah says, Rejoice, O greatly, great, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. See, humble and mounted on a donkey. And more specifically, what kind of donkey? A young colt, a foal of a donkey. So this is prophesied that Jesus would do exactly this. And of course, David entered Jerusalem on a donkey. Solomon entered Jerusalem on a donkey. And what Jesus is doing is he's reinforcing just what the blind man said. Son of David, you have the the genealogy of a king. You've got the legal right to be the king. And he's fulfilling that. And he says, I don't want you to bring it. He's, He's prophesying even that they'll get away with it. That they'll be able to bring it. Of course, it goes on to tell us why. If anyone says to you, Jesus anticipating, you know, imagine if we go outside here and someone walks up to your car and they just start opening the door and you left the keys in the car and they're starting out. Hey, what are you doing? What are you doing? Hey, Jesus needs your car. Oh, okay. You know, you might think a crazy person is making this up as an excuse, but he says the Lord has need of it and, he, and the Lord will send it back immediately. Jesus returns his tools that he borrows. Some people don't do that, right? And it says, And they went away and found the colt tied, just like it said, a door outside the street, and they untied it. And sure enough, the conversation had it. Say, hey, what are you doing here? I'm tying the colt. Don't steal this guy's donkey. And they said, they told him just what Jesus said. And they said, oh, okay, well then go ahead. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and they made a makeshift saddle there, and Jesus sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Okay, So the cloaks on the road was what people would do to, for a new king, basically saying, hey, you have authority over us. In fact, you can even walk on us. The cloak was symbolic of you or your person. The leafy branches was a way of praise. The palm leaves were ways of praising and honoring a king. So this wasn't something new that they just did for Jesus. They had done this for other Caesars, for other kings of Israel. It was very customary. And those who went before, who followed, were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And right here, they're quoting scripture. They go on to say, blessed is he who comes in the... Uh, coming kingdom of our, our father David, which all the, all the prophets had said, the Messiah that's to come will be of the house and lineage of David. And they're saying, Hoshana is the way you would properly pronounce it. Shana meaning to save. Ho means now. Save now. Save now. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus, uh, Matthew adds a little more detail about what Jesus is doing here. It says, and the crowd, so these crowds, there is, a crowd was a word usually common for a thousand. Crowds means thousands. And it's estimated because this is the week of Passover. Jews from all over the region were coming in. 
And Josephus, who was a paid historian by the Roman Empire, tracked history. He wasn't a Christian. He estimated there was 2.6 million people in Jerusalem at this time. He said there was 255,000 lambs slain that week for Passover. And the reason we can estimate the 2.6 million is because typically the pattern was one lamb for every 10. So 255,000 uh, lambs would be for 200, two, approximately 2.6 million people. So you can imagine these crowds are in the thousands. And again, they're saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is who he comes in the name of the Lord. And again, they're quoting scripture here from Psalm 118. Uh, 600 years before this happened, okay, David prophesied what exactly the crowd would say. Zechariah prophesied what kind of cult it would be on. And all these details that are coming true over and over again. So here's like a picture of what the scene could have been like as Jesus is entering the city. And basically what this is, is a coronation. We are crowning you king. Now, wait a minute. That's illegal. Who currently is the king of their, of their area? Caesar is, and Herod's you know, one of his tetrarchs. So Caesar, in fact, on coins, and, it, and also just it was a common saying in the street was, we have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. It, and, it, and it would say, Christos Kurios. Christos Kurios, which means Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. And Christians went around saying, no, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And that was just total uh, treason. It could be punishable by death. And so for them to say, Caesar's not a king anymore, Jesus is our king. So now the Roman soldiers are getting upset by what's happening here about this coronation. But again, Jesus is allowing it because what they're saying is true and because it's fulfilling prophecy. But do these people really mean it in their heart? No. No, this is, this is about as fake as my jar of mayonnaise right here, okay? It's not for real. They don't really mean it. People get caught up in emotion, right? Isn't that what Jesus said? When he cast the seed, and there was a seed went in all different directions, and some of it landed on stony ground. And it sprang up, but because it had no roots, it withered. And we see that, unfortunately. A lot of people, they get all excited. They say, I got saved. And, you know, they come to church for a while. And all of a sudden, life gets hard, and being a Christian is not easy. And then they're gone. It's like, well, I tried Christianity. No, you just got some religion and, and we're not talking about religion. We're talking about a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. Now, so Jesus is going into the very thing that represents Israel. The temple was like the, the, uh, the White House. It was what a White House means to America. It's, just, it's a symbol of who we are. It was everything. And this temple was something that was built in the Old Testament and then destroyed and then rebuilt and then added onto by Herod here. And so this was the place of worship but it really was just a place full of hypocrisy. Here's a picture of what it looked like. It was pretty impressive. Just the Gentile court alone was five football fields wide and three football fields, uh, three football fields wide, five football fields long. Okay, which just entered that fact. The Gentile court was just that big. Okay, it was the biggest part of the temple. Think about that. The Gentile court was the biggest part area of the temple. But we'll talk about more why that is here in just a little bit. So he entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple, and, went and he looked around at everything. So what Jesus is really doing here is he's casing the joint. <laughs> he's looking around saying, I really don't like what I'm, what's going on here, and here's what I'm going to do about it pretty soon. In the next day or two, I'm going to do something about it. He's looking around at everything. And what's interesting about it, it says different, different um, versions of the Bible translate this differently. It says it was already late. But in the Hebrew, it says it was too late. I think he's looking at the, the temple saying, could I possibly turn this place into a house of worship? And he's looking at all the trading and all the evil and all the stuff that's going on in the hypocrisy. And he's like, no, it's too late. And he went out of Bethany with the 12. Now, wait a minute. What just happened? Thousands of people... Just said, you're king, you're king, you're king. And he walked in the temple and goes, all right, guys, let's go home. And it's like, wait, what? What just happened here? Shouldn't he be going in there saying, okay, where's the Roman guard? You're first. Let's all go get him. Go and attack him. And then you know, kick the Romans out of the temple, you know, and, and have this big revolution get started. That's what they wanted when they said, save us now. Save us now. You're the king. And Jesus walks in and looks around and goes, all right, see ya. 
and checks out and goes home. It's kind of crazy. This triumphal entry was really not what it appeared to be. And again, people get a, make a big deal of Palm Sunday, but it's really not what Jesus is teaching here. In fact, what they were doing right there was fake, but someday it will be real. Revelation 7, talking in the future, when we're with Christ, says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number, from every, people, Christians from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, and with what? Palm branches. So there will be a Palm Sunday in heaven, and it will be the real deal. It will not be fake. So here's what he's doing here. He talks about what he's about to do. He's going to talk about the fig tree, and then cleanse the temple, and then the fig tree. Again, another, this is what Mark likes to do. When you read through the Gospels, and especially through Mark, you'll think, well, this seems really random. But look at what's on either side. About It's all about context. So on the following day, they came from Bethany, they're walking back to Jerusalem, and Jesus is hungry. And I believe what Jesus is hungry for is, is significant. He's hungry for righteousness, but he's not going to find any. And seeing in the distance, he sees a fig tree in leaf. So this, this tree is green, it's leafy, okay? And he went and he see if he could find anything on it. And when he, he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was, the season, it was not the season for figs. Now, some people look at this and they go, wait a minute, is Jesus stupid? Here it is, it's not fig season, and he's looking for a fig, and when he doesn't find it, he destroys the tree. Man, that's Jesus just being a baby? Is he throwing a temper tantrum? No, no, that's not what's happening at all. Okay? In, in Israel, when a fig, leaf, fig, leaf, fig tree sprouts leaves, it also sprouts little things called pagim. Okay? And it's little, little basically pieces that will eventually become the figs, Okay, but they're edible, and people would eat those as snacks well, as well. So Jesus is walking up thinking, I'll find some pagim, but it doesn't even have that. It doesn't even have the small fruit. So it, a, a fig tree could have two seasons, where it does the small fruit first and the big full-blown figs later, but he doesn't even find what should be there already on the fig tree. So the fig tree is a symbol of Israel as a nation and specifically of the temple. That's what we see in the Old Testament. Jeremiah says that. He says, when I could gather them, Israel, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine. Jesus commonly called Israel his vineyard, right? But he also says, nor figs on the fig tree. The vineyard, the flock, the fig tree, these were all symbolic language of the nation and specifically of the temple. So what was going on here was there was the appearance of fruit, the leafiness, which is a symbol of religion, but there's no actual fruit on it, and that's called hypocrisy. A tree presents itself to be fruitful, and when Jesus inspects it, he finds out that it's not. Could the same be said of us? That Jesus could inspect our lives carefully and find where we look all religious, but there's really no fruit in us. He said to it, he said, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And, and the disciples heard it. They're like, of course, Jesus made sure that they heard it. It's interesting. Later we'll see that the, the Pharisees hear, hear what Jesus says. Jesus is speaking out intentionally. So let me ask you this, this difficult question. Is there fruit on your tree? Is there fruit on your tree? That's what Jesus expects from us. Matthew seven seventeen says, So every healthy tree does what? Bears good fruit. Okay, there's bad fruit and there's good fruit. He, and he talks about that in this chapter. But if you are a healthy tree, and it's interesting I recommend you listen to the Bible Project podcast on trees. All throughout the Bible, people refer to as trees. And remember, just a couple passages ago, Jesus partially healed a blind man on purpose, and he says, I see men walking as trees. Okay, so there's a theme here, and he's saying, you guys are trees, and if you're healthy, you should bear fruit. That's what I made you to do. And, and there's three types of fruit you will see in the New Testament. Number one, there's attitude fruit. We could call this the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, right? Love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, long-suffering, patience, meekness, faith. All these things that, that are attitudes that should be in your life. Is your attitude any different than a lost person? Are you any different now since you got saved? Are you seeing this kind of fruit take place? Now, Galatians, Paul says it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's not something you try harder to do, try harder to do, work up and pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. It's something you allow the Holy Spirit to flow through you. 
And the Bible says we should yield to the Spirit. You know what it is to, to drive down the highway, right? And you come to one of those red triangle signs that most Houstonians ignore, and it says yield. W what's going on here? I have the gas. I have the ability to go. I could mash the pedal, and I could just go right out. But what I'm going to do is, instead of exercising my right to go, I'm going to allow the other person to go first, and then I'll get in line behind them. And that's what it is to yield to the Holy Spirit. You could just plunge right on ahead and say it. I just, I just say what I think. That's the kind of person I am. That's stupid. <laughs> or you could yield to the Holy Spirit and say, you know what? I'm going to put on the brakes. Holy Spirit gets out in front. I will follow. We need, we need to exercise the fruit of the Spirit in our attitudes. Number two, there should be fruit in your action. Your life should be different. The things that you do for others should be different. You could sit there and pray for the poor all day long, but do you help them? You could pray for the missionaries all day long, amen, but do you help them? <laughs> we, does your action speak louder than your words? In, in, we should live differently. We live in a day where everybody seems to, well, a lot of people claim to be Christian. There's no difference. There, there's, it's like Jesus walks up and says, hey, you look like a Christian. Oh, wow, wait a minute, look. There's nothing here. It's just leaves. It's just religion. It's really not Christianity. Number three, the third type of fruit, and this is the most difficult one, is addition fruit. Is there anyone who is in the kingdom now who's been added to the family of God because of you? Are you sharing Jesus? Are you telling others about Christ and, and letting that fruit bear forth? So there's the three type of fruit that should be in our life. And this is what Jesus is teaching about. This fig tree was disappointing when Jesus was hungry, he's hungry for righteousness. What did he say when he taught the Beatitudes? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jesus is hungry here. He is literally hungry, but he's also using this as a lesson like Jesus always does. He's teaching. Verse 15 says, And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. Now what's interesting, as I look at this week, I kept thinking, you know, he's, he's driving out those people who are selling because they're ripping people off. Because here's what's happening. You've traveled maybe 180 miles to come to Jerusalem. Instead of dragging a lamb the whole way, you think, we'll just buy a lamb when we get there, which makes a whole lot of sense. <clears throat> but you come with your foreign money, and when you get there, you need to exchange it into shekels because only shekels could be used in the temple. And so when you exchange it, they have a markup fee, and it's pretty exorbitant, which they shouldn't be doing, but they're doing that. And so you're, the money changers <coughs> are changing the currency for you. They're charging you a hefty fee. Then you go buy... Uh, a lamb, okay, and they've got that lamb marked up. They're gouging. But even for those who live a little more locally and they bring their lamb, the priest has to inspect it. Because what kind of lamb does it have to be? Spotless lamb, right? Perfect lamb. And so the priest inspects your lamb and goes, oh, I see a defect back here. You're not, we're not going to be able to take this lamb. Oh, man. But my brother Joseph over here, he sells lambs. Why don't you go over there and get yourself a lamb? So they trade in their lamb like a used car, and they get another lamb. And guess what Joseph does with that lamb two hours later? Sells it to someone else, and the priest goes, oh yeah, this lamb's perfect. And they were, it was just a big money-making scheme. It was the, the equivalent of billions of dollars being made here. Every It was like, this was like the Super Bowl of the year. This is when all the money was made and, in this situation. So he, but he's also getting on the people who are buying which is really interesting, but, but, but because it, was, it wasn't just what was happening here, it was where it was happening. You see, what was happening here, if you look at a map here of the temple, <clears throat> the two big blank areas with the gold one are the two courts of the Gentiles. When God, who, who was the architect of the temple? God was. When God designed the temple, he had tons of room for Gentiles to come in and pray. And you know what they did? Especially on this, the part on the right, it was just a flea market because no Gentiles ever came in there. So like, well, let's just sell our pigeons here. Let's sell our lambs here. Let's do all this stuff. Let's make lots of money here. And he's like, wait a minute. This is where Gentiles are supposed to be praying and seeking God and being converted to the true God of Israel. And you're gouging people and making all kinds of money here. Um, just a small little note. I, I grew up in church where because of this type of thing, if you were a kid and you... Like, let's say you were selling candy bars for your baseball team. The church said, don't do it in the sanctuary. Don't do it in the sanctuary. And actually, 
without being legalistic, I think it's probably a good idea. <laughs> I just really don't want to turn the auditorium and place of worship into where we're just constantly selling and buying whatever. But again, I understand we are the temple and this building necessarily isn't holy. We're, wherever we gather, whether it's on the parking lot or in a bounce town or a dance studio, that's what the, the congregation's holy. But it's still a good practice to kind of keep the things away without being too legalistic about it. But this is what's t- ticking Jesus off, is that, that all this, this flea market is going on in a place that's supposed to be where people are praying, especially lost people. Jesus made lots of room for lost people. And, and we as a church, we want, we want to have lost people. In fact, Paul even talks about there are certain ways you need to teach and certain ways you need to act in church so that lost people aren't confused. Paul was anticipating that lost people would be in church. So whenever you hear people say, well, Sunday morning is not for lost people, it's for the saved. But Paul was anticipating the lost people hopefully would be there. So please keep inviting people to come to church. It's a good thing. He made the biggest parts of the temple were for the Gentiles, the lost people. And so Jesus overturns the tables. Think, man, Jesus, first he curses a fig tree, and now he's flipping tables. He's really in a bad mood. Maybe he's on a low-carb diet, and something's really making him freak out here. That's not what's happening at all. Jesus is doing what he's allowed to do. He said, well, that, how is that even nice to the guy who's selling the stuff? Well, wait a minute. Whose house is this? So imagine you came home to your house and your 17-year-old and his friends are selling drugs out of your living room. I would say you have a right to flip the tables because whose house is it? It's your house. So before you get on to Jesus about flipping tables, just remember who bought and paid for the furniture. It's his house, which is a whole nother level of him saying he's God, right? Because all this... This is the house of Jehovah, and he comes in and says, yeah, it's my crib. This is my place. And he flips the tables, and he, he's not throwing a temper tantrum. And this also gets rid of the sissy, white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus who's like, you know, I hate those pictures. I can't stand those pictures. Jesus was a carpenter who made big pieces of furniture with no power tools. With his, I mean, he, he was built, okay? And he was a rugged man. He carried a 220-pound cross a quarter of a mile after being beaten for 36 hours. I mean, he, he was a man's man. And so, and, and yeah, he could knock over tables. He could curse fig trees. You know, we got, we got to get a different picture of Jesus. And, and so the money changers, we already talked about them. And then talks about the seats. This is talking about more than just furniture. When you had a seat, that means it, like you sat on city council or Job sat at the gate or, you know, um, different people. It's, it means your place of authority. And so those who had the authority to oversee the pigeon sales. Now, who goes to Passover week and buys a pigeon? Poor people do. Poor people do. That Joseph and Mary, Jesus' foster dad and mom, when they went to the temple for purification, all they could buy was pigeons or doves. Turtle doves, pigeons, same basically thing. The cheapest birds you could find on the street. And for a few pennies, you basically bought them. And so what basically he's saying, you're marking up pigeons on poor people. So who are they taking advantage of? It's, it's just really sad. It says, and he, he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So remember the picture of the temple. People would have a whole lot of goods they were going to sell. And they're like, you know, I need to get to the other side. But if I cut through the court of the Gentiles, I can get there faster. And again, they're walking through a place where Gentiles are supposed to be praying and seeking God. You think it would be a quiet, reverent place, but they're carrying all their animals through. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. You're not bringing your animals in here anymore. He's standing at the gate. So you imagine if, if <clears throat> me and Patrick, we go to the mall, and I stand there at the mall and say, hey, no, no, this gate's closed. Go out, go around, go around. And people are like, what, what? I always come here. No, get out of here. And Jesus is like that. He's standing at the gate like, no, you're not bringing your animals in here. Get, get. This is my house. You're defiling it. You're turning into a den of thieves. And so there was two groups here that were sadly being abused. Number one was the Gentiles. Those who did not know God were being abused by those who professed that they did. How hypocritical is that? You know, I, I realize that if a lost person comes to Revolution Church, some, some of the singing may sound different to them especially if we're singing about the blood of Jesus. That may sound wrong, you know? And then I tell people that I say, talk about how we're all sinners and, and that we're not really as good as we think we are. That might make them feel uncomfortable. And there's a lot of things that we may do that are just true that we can't change. 
But God forbid that we do stuff that's not in the Bible that makes lost people feel uncomfortable. You know, like we have to wear a jacket and a tie. You know, we have to carry the biggest Bible in the world. We got to do all these religious things that make lost people like, wow, what is that? These people are crazy. We need to make sure we're not creating unnecessary stumbling blocks because Jesus is the only stumbling block. And that's necessary. We're not going to compromise on that. We're not going to stop preaching the Bible. I'm going to still call sin, sin. And our culture is totally redefining everything, turning everything upside down. And it's going to offend them. It's going to make people mad. And, uh, and it, it will eventually end up with some of us in jail over it. But that's what we're going to do. But let's not offend Gentiles, lost people, over unnecessary things. But what else was sad was it was abusing the poor. The two people who needed the temple more than anything, the two people, groups of people who needed a relationship from a loving God more than anybody, and those were the ones that were being abused. <clears throat> so Jesus was teaching them. Again, Jesus always teaching, always teaching. He said, is it not written, quotes the Old Testament here, my house, my house, I'm allowed to overturn tables here because this is my house, shall be called a house of prayer for who? For all nations. You've made it to where it's an exclusive club for Jews and nobody else is welcome. Here's the Jews, when they're crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, they thought he was going to go in and cleanse the temple of Gentiles and kick out all the Romans. And Jesus said, no, I'm here to cleanse it for the Gentiles. Totally opposite of what they wanted. You see, Christianity is for all nations. You know what's interesting is they've done research on world religions. And almost every world religion, in fact, every world religion other than Christianity, 80% of its adherents are within a few hundred miles of where it started. Look at Islam. Where are most Muslims? Around Saudi Arabia. Where are most Buddhists? Around China, Indo border. Okay? Pick any world religion, most of the people who follow it are there. Where's Christianity? All over the map. All over a map. In South America, a whole continent away from where Jesus was born, Christianity is just taking over. In Korea, which in the 1940s was 1% Christian, is now about to go over 50% Christian on the other side of the world from Jesus. Because Christianity is culturally relevant no matter where it goes. Because it's not about speaking a certain language, dressing a certain way, or acting a certain way. It's about the love of God, which translates to all his creatures. And that's what heaven's going to look like. And that's what Revolution Church is, needs to look like. We need to be as colorful as possible. We don't want to be the all-white church, the all-Hispanic church, the all-Chinese church. We want to be the church for all nations, because that's what heaven will be like. And so the chief priests and the scribes, the people who should have been representing God the most, they heard it and they said, we want to kill him. Man, just such hypocrites. And here, why did they want to kill him? Because they were afraid of him. Why were they afraid of him? Because he was more popular than they were. It's all about religious power. You see, they, they, you probably have heard this before, Scott. They, they say that the true test of a pastor's heart is when he prays for revival and it happens in the church down the street. And are you okay with that? We need to pray for revival in Pearland, in Brookside Village, in Houston. But what if God brings it another way? You know, or is it about revolution churches, about the kingdom of God? We need to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. So instead of cleansing the temple and Jerusalem of Gentiles, the Romans, he cleansed the temple for the Gentiles. He wants all people. And this, you'll see that, how the gospel spreads that way. And when evening came, they went out of the city. So once again, all this happens, and then they just leave. And they passed by in the morning, and they saw the fig tree, the same one, and now it's withered and away to its roots. Okay? This, this thing looked crispy all of a sudden. Just a couple days before, they see it. It's green and leafy. And now it's all of a sudden, all the way down to the roots, it's all crispy and dry. So what does the fig tree represent? Remember what I said? What does the fig tree represent? Nation of Israel, and specifically the temple. And so therefore... What do the roots represent? The foundation of Israel was its temple, and the foundation of the temple was the stones underneath. And Jesus says, you know what? This tree is a picture of the nation, our, our foundation, the Word of God. You guys aren't even practicing it. It's withered at its roots. The temple, it's going to be destroyed from its roots. In Mark 13, 
we're going to be there in a few weeks, but Jesus prophesies this, and it says he came out of the temple, and one of his disciples said, look, teacher, what wonderful stones. Talk about the foundation, how big, you massive they were. And what wonderful buildings put on top of these massive stones. And what's weird is, Jesus you know, just got done overturning the tables and throwing, you know, making everything violent there, and they're like, did they forget this? And just a couple days later, like, man, aren't these buildings beautiful, Jesus? Aren't these amazing? And Jesus is like, do you see these buildings? <laughs> they're like, Jesus, do you look see the buildings? He's like, do you see the buildings? There, there will not be one of these foundational stones left upon another that will not be thrown down. And of course, this came true in 70 AD when Antiochus Epiphanes comes in and destroys the temple looking for gold in its foundation and literally is turning over one stone so it was perfectly leveled as they're looking for the gold which they did not find. So Jesus prophesied through the tree, that its foundations, the root would be dried up, just like the temple, its foundation would be destroyed. So Jesus, what he's doing in this passage here, with fig tree, temple, fig tree, the sandwich he's trying to show us here is, he, he's talking about what is the opposite of hypocrisy in these next few verses. First of all, Jesus says, have faith in God. You see, what you've been doing is you've been having your faith in a building. You've been going to the temple thinking you'd be closer to God. And that's what it should have been, but you can be close to God anywhere. Now, people say, well, I don't need to go to church. Church is not something you go to. It's not a building. It's not an event. It's a group of people. And this group of people chooses just to follow Jesus' command to every Lord's day to worship Him. So whether we gather in the parking lot or we gather in this beautiful auditorium, we, it's, it's where the people are. It's not the building. Sometimes we walk into a building and think, oh, I need to act differently. I need to dress differently and do all that, whatever, because I'm in this special building and he's saying, don't have faith in a building, have faith in God. You see, you put your confidence in your relationship with God, not in a building or any of those externals that the Jews were practicing. And then he says, truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain. Now, I, I don't have a strong opinion on what I'm about to say here. But there's a theory, and I, was, I got it from reading some, some of the commentaries. That he didn't say, whoever says to a mountain, be cast into the sea. He said to this mountain. The temple was built on a mountain. And he's saying, and this mountain, this temple is going to be cast into the sea. This, this temple is going to be literally be leveled. I don't know if for sure that's what Jesus is saying, but it's a very interesting point here. But he says, but don't doubt in your heart, but believe. And whatever he says will come to pass and it will be done for him. So what Jesus is saying here is don't pray hypocritically. Don't be hypocritical about externals and don't be hypocritical about your prayers. You need to believe that God is able and that God is willing to do what we ask Him to do. He says, therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Now, we have to put everything in context. Jesus isn't giving you a blank check. Say, hey, whatever. You want to ask for a billion dollars? Here you go. Just ask. Oh, you didn't get it? It's because you didn't have enough faith. No, it's because it wasn't God's will. You see, we need to ask according to His will. 1 John 5 says this, And this is the confidence that we have towards Him, not in ourselves, but towards Him, that if we ask anything, what? According to His will. So you can't ask for God to kill someone you hate. Okay? I know you really want that, but you can't do that. Okay? That's not according to His will. You can't ask for things that are outside of God's will, but we can ask, and we should ask, with confidence for things that are within his will. He says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything, everybody say anything. Anything, anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Is there someone who's hurt you by what they did, by what they said, by promises not kept? Is it still bugging you? Is it, is it deep down inside? Is it withholding the love you should be having for them? Because Jesus said, love your enemies. You know that that unforgiveness is hurting you more than it's hurting them. It is hindering your prayer life. And, and Jesus is saying, man, you have to forgive. You have to forgive. He's saying when it comes to hypocrisy, don't be hypocritically unforgiving when you've been totally forgiven. How can God totally forgive you of everything? And then you say, oh, well, I'll forgive you, but not of that. Yeah, I'm so glad that God did not do that to us. So what can we learn from this, this passage here in Mark chapter 11? 
First of all, we learn that Jesus is king of Israel and king of the temple, and he hated its hypocritical show of religion. Jesus hated the very show of religion. And then we also learn that Jesus is Lord of the new temple, which is us, the church, and that he hates any hypocritical show that's in us. Man, let's not be hypocritical. George Barnes done research of why people who used to go to church stopped. And number one reason is hypocrites. Now, some of that's on us because we've been hypocritical. And some of that's on them because hypocrisy is everywhere. It's in government, but people still vote. It's in the gyms. Out of shape, people go to the gym, but it's, we still go. You know, we're hypocritical. And so I, I, I had a doctor who smoked that told me I needed to lose weight. Okay. Maybe I should stop eating mayonnaise. I don't know. Uh, but it, I thought, man, that's how hypocritical you're telling me what I should do when you smoke. You know, so there's hypocrites everywhere. In fact, uh, one of my pastors I had years ago, some, he was inviting a guy to church. We were on visitation, inviting a guy to church. He said, oh, I don't go to church because there's hypocrites. And the pastor said, well, there's always room for one more. So I'm like, I like the director out there. Um, Jesus is also Lord of your body because doesn't the Apostle Paul tell us our body is the temple? So he's the Lord of your body, which is his temple, and he hates any hypocritical show in you. So not only in us as a church, which we are the new temple, but us individually, we each are a place of worship where the Holy Spirit resides. We, he doesn't want any hypocrisy in us. 1 Corinthians 6 says this, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? within you, whom you have from God. And read the last part with me. You are not your own. And the rest of it goes on to say how you're bought with a price. So you can't be hypocritical in your body. So Jesus un- overturns the tables. Again, he's in his house. He has every right to do so. Just like the parent who comes home and finds drug dealing going on in their house. It's not a problem at all. And Jesus curses this fig tree. And he says, no, may there never be fruit on it again. But what's fascinating about this is the fig tree is not only a picture of the curse on Israel, the curse on the temple, but it's also the curse on us. And Jesus, not only one day he curses a fig tree, and a few days later he's cursed as he's hanging on a tree. This is what this story is all about. That Jesus took the curse that was on us, and he took it upon himself. You see, when Adam and Eve first sinned, what did God do? He pronounces a curse on the serpent. He pronounces a curse that affects Adam. He pronounces a curse that affects Eve. And we've all been living with it ever since. And we are all sinners, not only by inheritance from Adam, but by choice through our own will. And we all deserve death. But Jesus took that curse upon us, and he died in our place. As you look at this right here, we need to see, we must see, ourselves on that cross with a crown on our own heads nails through our own hands scars all over our own body and imagine the torment and think that someone loved you this much that he took your place that's that's the gospel that that's what we all need to live out every day and if you don't know christ you need to trust him today to save you galatians says that christ redeemed us redeeming something you take something that has no worth and you make it valuable he redeemed us it's taking a slave and buying their freedom and setting them free christ redeemed us set us free from the curse just like he cursed the fig tree he took the curse upon us and set us free the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us for it is written cursed is everyone that's hanged on a tree so gary he's not hanging on a tree he's hanging on a cross jews use the word tree like we use the word wood This is made out of wood. I'm going to take a walk into the wood. We use it the same way. And don't let that language confuse you. So let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes if you would. I'd ask every believer and every child of God to be praying that the Holy Spirit of God would open hearts to the gospel this morning. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, today's your day. Today's the day of salvation. I'm not judging you that Scripture does that. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I stand before you, one of the biggest sinners in the room. But I want to share with you that I found a Savior. His name is Jesus. And he came to save you from your sin. He's asked this, that because he gave his life for you, he wants you to give your life to him. You could pray a prayer, something like this. This prayer will not save you. There's no magic words. But in faith, 
you could express it to your, what's your, on your heart right now. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me. I can think of so many things that I've done wrong, and I understand now that you've died for every single one of them, and you forgive me for all of them. So I trust you to forgive me, and I give my life to you. Take total control. I'm holding nothing back. I pray that you just would be the Lord of my life and the Savior of my soul, and I ask this in your name. Amen. If you made that decision, this is my cell phone number. Please contact me. Let me know that you've trusted Christ, and let's talk about your steps as a new believer. We're going to do question and answer session time now. So Amanda, want to come help me with that? So feel free to text your questions in anytime. If you're at home watching online, you can text it in right there, and we'll get that, and we'll answer your question. If you'd rather just raise your hand, we can do that as well. So here you go. Amanda, grab that microphone. And... I don't see any yet. <laughs> Ashley, why don't you ask it out loud? So, and y'all can text yours in while I ask you asking out loud. Good, good question. So it's interesting. Hinduism and Eastern religions teach that Faith is a force, and words are the containers of the force. And therefore, if you speak things, then faith enters into that which you've spoken, and it becomes a reality. So let's say you're starting to run a little fever, you're getting a little sniffle, but you say, I am healthy, I am well. Then you're speaking reality, and all of a sudden you're changing your reality, and that cold will go away. And that's, that's Hinduism, that's not Christianity. Okay? Christianity says you ask God to heal you, and God can heal you, but you don't change your reality by speaking words. And people will abuse verses like in the Old Testament that death and life are in the power of the tongue. That if you say something, people will die. That's if you're the king. <laughs> the king had the power of life and death. And he, he could say, off with his head, and boom, it happened. That's what that verse is talking about. But people will abuse verses. Um, you do need to be careful what you say, obviously. If you go around saying negative stuff all the time, it will change your mood. But it doesn't change your reality. You can say, I am... I am skinny and six foot tall or whatever, and you're not, you know, whatever it may be. You can't just keep saying and think it's going to come true. But people have that, and it's, it's naming and claiming. Really what it amounts to is bossing God around. That's why John, John Jesus' best friend, says, when we ask according to his will, okay? So we can't, we have to put it in context. Again, the verse though is teaching that we should be asking God for a whole lot more than we are. But it, it all, there's a balance, okay? There, we need to ask, even Jesus said, you know, Father, if it's your will, let this cup pass. Did God the Father answer that prayer? No. Okay? So if anybody could have named it and claimed that Jesus could have, okay, but he submitted to the Father's will. And again, I don't think he was talking about the cross. I think he was talking about the separation from the Father, just for clarification. Great question. Okay. Patrick, question? <laughs> All right, good. Wow. Last week you had a ton of questions. This week, none. All right. That's Okay. So, and Adam and Eve covered themselves with, with fig leaves. That's a great question, and I have no answer for you. I, I would, I'm going to have to study that to see if the Genesis fig tree has a connection to this fig tree. Like, what did the leaves covering them? Of course, that, well, let me just, I do know what the fig leaves meant for Adam and Eve. It was them and their own religion trying, there's the connection, there it is. They're trying their own religion to cover their sin, and God's like, that doesn't work. How many of you want to dress in fig leaves? No, God says, forget the fig leaves. I'm, you sinned. You, he said, the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. But guess who died instead? An animal, which was probably a lamb. And he covered them. He said, no, here's some better clothes. He covered them with a lamb. So their hypocrisy of their religion tried to cover their sin. There you go. And that's what he's cursing the fig tree for. There we go. Great question. We put it together. All right, Charles. I think so. Um, I do know that there's two miracles, and Mark only talks about Bartimaeus, but other Gospels talk about two blind men. And we talked about last week that that's not a contradiction. Naming one doesn't negate the others. Now, had Mark said there was only one blind man, then we'd have a contradiction. But the Bible doesn't have contradictions. And it's just like I mentioned last week that if I said Chris said something funny, you say, well, wasn't Ashley there? Well, I didn't, I'm just telling the story about Chris right now. So it doesn't mean other people weren't there. So uh, I'd have to look it up to see if Luke is one of those same parallel accounts. We, 
Yeah, and you see the same thing happen with the demoniac. One gospel says talks about one of the guys, and the other one says there's two. Well, just because he only talks about one doesn't mean there was, wasn't more than one. If he had said only one demon-possessed man was there, then you'd have a contradiction. It's a good question. Any other questions? I had a question. Okay. Over somebody else, and says something, and says something like, um, "So when someone's praying over someone else, and, and we're there, and we know better, and is saying something like, you know, the children of God do not get sick, so you are not sick, and this person's in the hospital. What do we do? What is the appropriate thing to say to the person getting prayed for, to the person praying? Do you just let it go? I, I just like, what is the appropriate response? Yeah, you, you definitely want to be as wise as serpent and harmless as a dove. You, you want to be discerning and tactful. You don't want to walk in with a sledgehammer and say, heresy, heresy, you know, you know, like that. You don't do that. But yet at the same time, if this, if this person is giving false hope to someone, when they're done praying, when they come back and say, you know what, I, I appreciate that they're praying for you. What, everything they prayed for wasn't actually true. You know, Job got sick and he had done no wrong. I mean, all the disciples died and were persecuted and all that stuff. We can't claim prosperity in every part of life. doesn't mean that God doesn't want you to prosper, but sometimes his definition of prosper is different in different situations. And sometimes God uses cancer to humble us. God uses death to humble us. And he can use these things. I'm not saying God's the author of evil and the God's the author of sickness, but God can still use that. I, I know when I was 14, I got covered with the worst case of cystic acne that three dermatologists were like, we don't know what to do for you. And I have scars all over my back and my chest and on the sides of my face to prove it. And I would not trade that acne for the world because I, at 14 years old, it put me on my knees and realized my only true friend in the world is Jesus. And I fell in love with him. And, I, and, you know, I was cocky and arrogant, thought I was good looking and I was a basketball player. And all those things were taken away and God put me on my knees. And I praise God for the acne. So we can't always say God's children don't get sick. I mean, the evidence is obviously to the contrary. And, not, not, and Job's friends were like, Job, you're sick. What did you do? What's your sin? And he's like, hey, I wish I could have a court case with God and find out because I have no idea what it is. And it, the, the thing was, there wasn't anything. It was a test. It was a test to see would he still glorify God through his sickness and through the death of all of his children and loss of all his property. None of that was because he was sinful, but that was their theology. His friends, their theology was good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. And that's just absolutely not true. Good things happen to bad people. It's called common grace. It rains on the just and the unjust is what Jesus says. So there's, there's people who are very evil enjoying God's goodness, and there's people who are very good that suffer from you know, leukemia. All kinds of things happen. We can pray against it, but we can't deny its reality. Um, man, you had a question. About turning your phones off in church. Yeah, good job. <laughs> Yeah. Sure. It's a great question, and it's a passage that isn't taught on a lot, and the real answer is because most of us preachers don't know what it means. And we really, nobody really knows exactly what it means, but we do know that the resurrection is pictured by the harvest. So when a field was ready to be harvested, instead of just going and, and harvesting all of it, you would go in and you'd pick out the first fruits. And it'd be, you'd pick out the best and you'd give that first 10% to God. And then you'd go to your, your harvest. So Jesus was, uh, Galatians I think it calls him the first fruits of those who slept. So I think Jesus and some others represented that first fruits. And I don't know who they were or why they were. They wouldn't be resurrected if they weren't believers. And the question is, were they resuscitated like Lazarus to later die? Or were they actually resurrected and taken up in the glory? Jesus walked around for 40 days in his resurrected body. Did they too? 
I don't know. The, the passage offers more questions than answers. So, Brother Bowden, you have the answer to the question for us? <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, good deal. Well, uh, we're going to go ahead and uh, let's stand and we're going to pray and be dismissed.